0: Once more under the breach, dear
1: friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead.
0: Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. Together we are bald.
1: And we have learned through diligent effort and long practice to say our last names together. Yes,
0: occasionally. Right. Right. Uh, When we are in top form, we can in unison say our names together.
1: Yes. Yes. Which is a lot more difficult than you might think it is because we're in different places and there is a significant lag between one and the other. Yes.
0: If you've ever watched, uh, well, everybody has, the 24-hour news channels as they talk to each other across satellite and they say, hello, Janet, please proceed. And Janet sits there and looks very intelligent as she's holding her ear gazing off into the distance for several seconds and then she talks. Right. Yes. Live is not as live as it looks or maybe it's not as live as it, it's not as live as it used to be. And maybe it's deader. Live is deader than you think
1: it is. Hmm. Well, digital digital live is different from analog live and biological live. Yes. And we could, somebody could probably get a government grant and write a dissertation on that.
0: What do you do for a living? I'm a radio frequency biologist. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) All right, we are actually economists, and we're here to talk to you about, get this, the economy. We're also going to talk about some personal finance stuff, because we do a lot of that as well. Um, The two of us uh, are uh, Jeff and Jake, Uh, just so happen to also be principals at another firm or at a firm, it's not really another firm, it's kind of the firm that we're with, um, the Personal Wealth Coach, which is also the name of this radio program. Hmm. It's a whole nother firm. It's a whole nother firm, yes. Right. S- right. Specific to the word another. Right. Um, yes. So the Personal Wealth Coach is also an SEC-registered investment advisory firm.
1: What which the, does not imply in any way that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything we're doing. As a matter of fact, given the opportunity, they would disapprove.
0: Yes, that is their job. And we're just happy that they don't disapprove of us tremendously. Right. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure that they've ever disapproved of us, which is not because they haven't approved of us, but because they haven't had enough it's, notice of us, maybe?
1: I don't well, know. they looked hard.
0: Yeah. Um. All right. So... The SEC uh, doesn't give us some kind of brand of approval. They're just our regulator. Now, we said that we're giving investment advice as a firm. That's something that's in the best interest of the client, putting the client ahead of us by far, all that good stuff. And we can't do that on the radio because we don't know you. And you're not clients. And um, all of the privacy issues and all that good stuff if you are clients. So what we do instead is education, because we believe that if we educate people, hopefully they'll use it. It seems to have some track record and that people that know more tend to make better decisions. I know this is weird stuff. There's got to be a study on this, too. Uh, Do you have another disclosure for us?
1: Well, the information that we provide on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. But we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information or unsaid information.
0: We uh, also you know,
1: do yes, not. I went into my radio voice to say that.
0: Yes, we also do not pay for this radio program. It's not a paid commercial program. It. We also don't get paid to do the program, which makes us. I don't know. Is that charity? Pro bono. Pro bono. Uh, we do advertise on the station for the program. As does the studio. They, We have all been advertising this for a long time. We've been doing this program together since 1998, and you had two years in advance of that where you were doing it on your own for an hour instead of mm. two hours. Right. So uh, we've been doing this a long time. Yeah. Okay. We have a couple of questions from Inquisitor John, our faithful questioner. The first one is titled stagflation. Are we entering a period of stagflation? Is it because it happens so infrequently, the last time in the 1970s, that the Fed didn't see it coming? Or is it not used to managing it as opposed to a recession? Well, there's an easy answer to this, and that is, what is stagflation? Well, that's not an answer, that's a question. Stagflation is when you have a high amount of inflation and a high amount of unemployment at the same time so that people aren't working and prices are going up. We're not doing that right now. We have a high period of inflation. The danger is that the inflation will sap the growth out of the economy or that the Federal Reserve will make it so hard to get money that businesses won't be able to expand and that will sap the energy out of the economy. So this is a different kind of inflation than the 1970s, the, the kind of inflation in the 1970s was wrapped around wages being ratcheted up regardless of what you were producing. And one of the things that the Federal Reserve is watching that we're watching, there's an employment price index that talks about how the pay is compared to what inflation is. And recently it's not keeping up with inflation. So that means that wages aren't going up as fast as inflation is. And we can see that in some other statistics. We can see that um, consumer debt went up more than, than we expected it to because people still have to or still want to buy the things that they were buying. But it also says something about the confidence in the economy. So that consumer debt going up, that sounds bad, except that we're at a historically very low level of consumer debt. People during the pandemic spent a lot of money in paying down debt. So we're not anywhere near back up to where we were in 2019 in consumer debt. But we see that uptick and we see that employment price thing. All of it means that the inflation we're seeing is not stagflation. So that's, that is the, the long-winded quick answer is uh, less long-winded. It's not stagflation that we're seeing right now. It is bad inflation, and I know it sounds like that's a quibble from an economist. You're talking about the difference between, oh, I am experiencing inflation. Yes, but you probably have a job. <laughs> that's the difference. Um, and that's, that is the difference that needs to be underlined here. This is still not fun, but it's not as unhealthy to the economy as the 1970s.
1: You know, there's another thing about inflation that has not made the headlines because it's not sensational. And that is, when we look at month-over-month month inflation, in other words, inflation so far this year, uh, we've had four months to go by to measure inflation. Inflation so far this year is running at about a 3.6 annualized rate. Now, I realize that you saw the consumer price index come in for the first quarter or was consumer price comes in for the for the month or whatever recently. And they say 8% or something like that, 7.8 or 8.2. That is from a year ago. And if it were still running month over month, in other words, if in the first quarter, if you analyze it it was still running seven point eight or eight percent, that would be something to be seriously concerned about. In fact, it's running about three point six percent, which is a lot sl- lot less inflation than we had last year yeah, and it is trending downward, which means that if things continue as they are and they probably they look like they're going to at this point. Um, as the year progresses, you're going to see lower inflation year over year. Year over year inflation is only—it actually is just an arbitrary measure. You want to measure. You want to really look at inflation. Look at it over a multiple year period. Um, and the other—the other side of inflation that you really ought to be aware of is for the past several months, three, four months. On a uh, month by month, what has been the rate of inflation? And when you see, for instance, inflation at 0.3% for a month, you multiply that times 12 and it gets it, you get 3.6% inflation. That's not pre- for those math nerds out there that I know that's not precisely exactly correct, but neither is the inflation measurement exactly precisely correct. The other side of inflation that you want to look at, which is running even a bit slower than that is the core PCI. And then, oh, I'm getting geeky here when I say the core PCI. Or
0: should we just call that the CPCI? That way people will have a, a longer and more um, non-functional acronym. Yeah,
1: and, and it'll, make us pronounce. Sound, it'll make us sound like we know stuff that other people don't know. It's um, it's it's the it's actually the, the, the PCE or PCI? PCI. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's the index. So that's right. It's the personal consumption index. The personal consumption index says not only what the CPI comes in and looks and says, okay, we have this fixed items that we look at. And we're going to look at the same ones every month because that's rigorous and that's really good. We're going to look at the same ones every month and see how the prices change. We're going to call that inflation. The, the PCI looks at what people are actually spending money on each month and looked at the variations in price. And that is more realistic in many, many ways. And it is the one that you feel in your pocketbook in many, many ways. Then to get the core CPI, you pull out food and fuel. Why? Well, because food prices fluctuate tremendously, even from month to month. And fuel prices also fluctuate tremendously.
0: And to give a quick example of that, just because people, I get this question very regularly. What do you mean they fluctuate regularly month to month? Well, food is seasonal. Uh, it, it Cows are... Uh, Cattle give birth uh, seasonally. They don't do it all through the year, except in very strange cases. uh, Tomatoes tend to be born, in the same sense, seasonally. (laughs) Uh, And this is fascinating. People miss this. But oil prices tend to be much higher in the winter than they are in the summer.
1: That's because when the oil is grown, there's less of it grown in the summertime than there is in the wintertime. Uh, Well, there's
0: more grown in the summertime.
1: Well, then the price should be lower.
0: That's what I mean. Summertime, it's lower. And in the wintertime, it's higher. But it's also cold. And so people are using it to heat their house. And it's not a very effective way of making your house comfortable to heat your house in the summer.
1: Particularly with tomatoes.
0: Yeah, with tomatoes it's really a bad idea. But if you want to avoid petroleum products, you could invest in heating houses with tomatoes in the summer. And we've just gone on a very silly track. (laughs) (laughs) So the seasonality of these prices, it's not something that, you know, in today's era, we're kind of separated from the harvest season because so few of us do harvests anymore. We're working in some other industry completely. There's a very tiny fraction of 1% in agriculture in the United States. So when people say there's a seasonality to food, they're like, "Why? I eat the same amount every day." Well, yeah, but where you get it and who grows it and whether or not it's grown in a greenhouse or in a on a farm or whether or not the farm workers have covid and all that good stuff. That's different seasonality. That's when disease seasonality. So you get these massive swings up and down in prices of avocados and tomatoes. That are kind of predictable, and you can seasonally adjust your numbers, but if you've got it in the basket measuring inflation, it looks like we have these tremendous bursts of inflation, or why isn't the Federal Reserve doing something about this? They need to raise interest on tomatoes immediately. Well, wait. Yeah, they probably would if they could. <clears throat> anyway, well, back to the PCE.
1: Well, okay, we can actually move on to, because uh, it relates to that, to John's other question about uh, bond losses. Perfect. Excellent. Um, John's question was, if the bond market is so large compared to stocks, why are the losses so big this time? And why didn't investors see it coming? Um, well, there's a, it's an interesting story. Uh, investors did see it coming. Uh, the, we saw it coming. We've been talking and, about it for months um it's just we've most been talking about it for, actually for years the problem is that most people in not i, I don't mean most people but not not necessarily most money is invested based on emotion that's unfortunate or not fortunate as the case may be or whatever um people buy and sell based upon their personal experience and we have a lot of people in the stock and bond markets right now who don't do careful research. They just do what their neighbors are doing or they do what they for them, success with or what's worked for them in the past. And very few people who are actively investing have as much experience as I do. Uh, My investing uh, history started in the 1970s, which was back before the hills got dusty. And as a result, I saw a tremendous bear market in bonds that occurred in the late 70s and early 80s as interest rates rose and rose dramatically. And I watched companies going bankrupt, uh, insurance companies going bankrupt because they had big portfolios of bonds. I saw there were horrendous losses in the bond market and some in the stock market. It was not a pretty picture at all. The reality is that for the vast, vast majority of investors, and John, I, I suspect you're one of them, for your entire investing adult lifetime, Interest rates have been falling. And as interest rates fall, bonds rise in value. As interest rates rise, bonds fall in value. Now, that's something that's taught in finance school. It's taught everywhere. But since most of the people, the vast, vast majority of people who are investing today, both in stocks and in bonds, have never seen the prices of bonds fall, they have this tendency to say, Bonds are safe. The price never goes down. I have heard that literally said about real estate. Yeah. Real estate is a safe investment. They're not making any more land. Therefore, yeah. real estate is a completely safe investment. Well, it's... between 2007 and 2009, people found out that might not be true.
0: <laughs> might not. A lot of people found out that it really
1: wasn't true. And that... we've, we've, our memories are so short. We're back in that position now where people are basically, a lot of people are saying, Buy quickly, buy a house because it'll go up in value because real estate is, a, is a, the best place to buy a house. And the reason is-
0: Well, in real estate it literally is the best place to buy a house. You are correct there.
1: Yeah. It's the best place to invest in it. Well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, to me, it's a, it's, it's a very short period of time from 2007 to 2022. Well, for you. But for me. For everybody but,
0: else, it's 15 right. years, which is a long time.
1: If, yeah. And, and it seems person, like
0: yesterday to me as well.
1: If a person is 35 or 40 years of age, it's been their entire investing lifetime. Yeah. Houses have gone up in value. Therefore, houses are safe and houses will always be safe and there'll never be another bust. I have seen, I think, four booms and busts in real estate. I have seen, I think, four booms and busts in oil. We're going through a boom in oil right now. I have a great deal of confidence. Uh, the closest I get to certainty about the future, that um, there will be an oil bust and there will be a real estate bust down the road somewhere.
0: They occur. I mean, throughout history, we have boom followed by bust, followed by boom, followed by bust. And they have long cycles, long being 15 years. uh, And that we're right, right on time for this one. So people act like this is a surprise, and it is, unless you study history. George Santayana said, "Those who do not study history are condemned to repeat it," and they are because. <laughs> well, is actu-
1: his actual, actual direct quote: mm-hmm. "Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat Close enough. Though.
0: Close enough. Okay. Yeah. Um. So this yeah. co- this concept of of. Why don't investors learn from this? Some of them do, but the vast majority of people, you get this new generation of investors, every generation that make the same mistakes as the last generation. And it's, it's part of the reason why we have a radio program, honestly, because we really would like to see people learn from other people's mistakes rather than make them again just to make sure.
1: To give you an example of how bad the bond market is, I mentioned that the S&P 500 bond index was down about 12.5% from the beginning of the year. The article that John sent us, uh, thank you for taking pictures of these articles, John. Long-term treasury bonds lost more than 18% this year. Now, if you take into account the fact that long-term treasury bonds were also losing money during the last three months of the last year, They're now down more than 20%. So technically, the long-term treasury market is in a bear market. Long-term bonds in general are in a bear market. The whole bond market, if you want to measure it by any of the major, major indices, it's not quite there yet. It's it's down about 15%. Uh, But... Interest rates are. Con- there's absolutely no question. I mean, the Federal Reserve announced interest rates are going to continue to rise, and I can I can tell you that across the board they're going to continue to rise because they also announced they're going to shrink their portfolio of bonds. They're going to shrink their their book, which means they're going to be selling bonds into the open market. And the, when when you sell a lot, prices go down. And the Federal Reserve owns like 16% of the U.S. Treasury debt. And when they start selling those bonds into the open market, the price will go down and interest rates will go up. Promise. This happens. This This is is reality, folks. And interest rates have got a lot further to go on the upside. And as they go up, bonds will lose money.
0: And, And we'll tell you what the Federal Reserve has said repeatedly. The Federal Reserve said, has said that they see a neutral interest rate at 3.5%. That's neutral. We're at 1% now. We just had a half-point rise this week, and people are terrified that they're going to do it again, or are they going to do it again? Well, the Federal Reserve has been saying repeatedly, repeatedly, they're going to be raising interest rates. And they're going to continue to do it. Unless some massive shock hits our system, what they would keep it down. We're experiencing inflation. This is what you do when you experience inflation. You raise interest rates. You make the money harder to get.
1: The Fed actually hasn't said 3.5%.
0: Oh, former Fed governors and individual Fed governors right. in speeches, uh, acting Fed governors. Well, they're
1: actually... actually a few days ago one of them said 2.4% was okay neutral rate
0: so so there there's a spread but the spread starts that's like the the lowest in that spread of 2.4% we're at 1 now that means we have to more than double the interest rates at the short term area that's going to hurt people are, and, and here- that don't expect it are going to be hurt by that now now i get to uh, have the program to myself um one of the things that even though we're exporting a huge amount of 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 oil um our us trade the us trade deficit widened to a record of 109.8 billion dollars that means that we imported a whole lot more than we exported even though we're exporting all this extra oil expect that to fall off too as the uh as the world market settles down and our supply chain gets more and more here our imports won't be as severely affected are, are you back
1: i think i'm back I'm uh, back
0: you're back you can hear you so expect cool. that de- the record deficit of uh i mean and it's a big deal so just just hitting this we're talking about the um trade deficit Um, it came in at $109.8 billion where last month it was $89.8 billion. That is a big jump. It's a $20 billion jump and it's the highest jump in a single month that's been recorded. And it's the highest in a single month period that's been recorded. So what happened? Um, We ordered a bunch of stuff, a bunch of stuff. Uh, the, The, and then here's the, here's the key. We ordered a bunch of stuff, and we, and it didn't show up. So we ordered more, and it didn't show up. And the logjam is starting to break in some of the areas. So a bunch of it all arrived at the same time. Uh, so it sounds like, well, what did we just do? What happened in March that caused this to, to be so bad? Uh, well, the reality is that we all of the prayers for rain hit at the same time, and we had a flood.
1: Well, I dug into this and I found something interesting. There's a little piece of good news, and it well, it's the market thought it was bad news. Um, factory orders for U.S. manufactured goods rose 2.2 percent. Okay, that's cool. The orders for durable goods were up. non-defense durable goods minus aircraft. I know that sounds kind of complicated, but if you leave the government out of it and you leave the aircraft, which are big bumps in the road out of it, um, 1.3%, again, if you want to annualize that, that's like a uh, 12, 15% per year rise in orders for long-term durable goods. Now, why is that related to imports and exports? When, let's say I want your, what would you call it, your widget? Enameling machine?
0: Yeah, it's a, an embroiderer enameling widget machine. It will, okay, em, will enamel and embroider your widget.
1: i want to order this durable piece of equipment, this big, expensive, durable piece of equipment that is going to cause my business to make a lot more money down the road. And I decide to make an order for that, and I put the order into the company that manufactures it in the United States. This is there's a, a USA embroidering and enameling. There you go. Right. Yeah. Turns out that in order to make them embroidering and enameling widget machine, the company I ordered it from, USA Embroidering and Enameling, yes. um, yeah. has got components of that machine that they need to order from China. Yep. And so they put in a lot of orders to China, which really messes up our import-export balance. So the fact that it, that this is the interesting part. When you buy a car, that's the a durable good, by the way. Yeah. It's As opposed to a durable bad. It's manufactured in the United States, let's say. I Many, most of them are. And, but some of the parts are actually put together and built in Mexico, which they are mm-hmm. by companies that are owned by the U S companies that are manufacturing the car, which they are. That runs up our trade balance tremendously because you bought a car that is manufactured by a U.S. company, which is going to make money in the United States and is going to cause people in the United States to be better off in host, a host of ways, but it raises our trade deficit.
0: Yeah. And that's and lowers
1: And lowers our GDP.
0: And in the middle of this, and when I was saying this, this is important. I, earlier, I mentioned we exported a lot of oil, a lot of oil. Mm-hmm. We also Early. imported a lot of oil. We, our import of oil was almost $17 billion out of 109.8. We had 17 billion of that was an import of oil. Wait a minute. Aren't we the big producer of oil these days? What's going on with that? Well, this is exactly what you're pointing at. Crude oil gets imported from all over the rest of the world to get refined here. And then it's sent out and sold other places in the world. Sometimes it's sold here. So what you're seeing isn't the refinery buying the oil. It is a foreign company renting a refinery, but it looks like we're importing oil. And it's true, we're importing oil. It's here, (laughs) but it's a problem in that that oil may not be staying here and it just paid the United States money to be here and it's likely to be leaving here and um, you had something else you wanted to say?
1: Yeah, let's. Talk. I want to talk about neutral rates and so on. and What the Fed and why you use the three point five percent rate, and a, and a lot of economists are actually saying that. And occasionally, uh, as you said, people on the Federal Reserve Board have mentioned it. The there's a a lot of attention paid to the subtleties of what Federal Reserve governors say, mm-hmm. and several of them have endorsed um, a series of interest rate moves that will bring the short-term interest rates that banks charge each other to 2.5% at the end of this year. In other words, three half-point rises followed by three quarter-point rises. Um, Now, is there any guarantee that that'll happen? No, because as as they have said and and as the chairman has said, it's data-driven. If inflation starts to fall off, they'll raise interest rates less quickly but they're still going to get back to around 2.5% to get to neutral. What is neutral? Well, neutral means the Fed is no longer stimulating the economy. This is an interesting point, considering what the the bears in the market are saying right now. What the Federal Reserve has concluded is as long as the interbank interest rate, the short-term interest rates at which banks loan each other money, is set below 2.4%, it is stimulating the economy. It isn't Putting the brakes on, it isn't slowing things down. It isn't retarding growth. It is still stimulating the economy. Me, Two point four, they've gone to neutral.
0: Let, let's but, explain that. let just a second. Um, say you're a small business. You say, "I want." I am a small business. Okay, you're a small business. Uh, you want to expand, and you need uh, a widget maker immediately. It, it is a widget enameler. It puts enamel on widgets for you, and then embroiders it. Wow. Yeah, it's a very first. nice. I need.
1: I. I do need to get one of those.
0: Right. And you go, um, I could start making a profit on this fairly quickly. It's a large expense. But if I go to the bank right now, the interest rate's too high. I'm actually not going to make a profit immediately. I'm going to, it's going to eat into my profit. It's maybe break even. That's neutral. If you go to buy a solar panel to put on your roof, and you say, I'm going to save $100 a month on average over the year on my electricity bill. And your loan payment is $80 a month. That's stimulative. That means that you, you just made 20 bucks a month by taking a loan. Mm. And if that interest rate goes up a little bit so that it's right at $100, you're spending the same thing that you would have before. You're spending $100 on a loan instead of $100 on electricity, but the idea is at the end of the loan, you get this deal. So the profitability is pushed into the distance. That's neutral. When it costs more to put the thing on your roof than to pay the electricity, people stop buying the thing on the roof.
1: And it slows the economy down.
0: That's going to slow the economy, correct.
1: Right. So that's the. It. The 3.5 or 3.6% rate comes from the fact that there's also been a lot of discussion about the fact of what happens if inflation has become entrenched by then and we have a wage price spiral like we had in the late 1970s and 1980 and 81 and so on. Then the Fed would have to raise interest rates probably another percentage point, up around 3.6%, 3.5, 3.6%, and actually put the brakes on in the economy. Folks, if that happens... You go ahead and mark it on your calendar that Jeff said so. We'll have a recession. Because once the Fed actually starts putting on the brakes to stop a runaway economy, the tires are going to skid and there's going to be smoke and the vehicle will probably come to a complete stop. Or it will slow down a lot, maybe even go backwards, which is what a recession is. On the other hand, we there there is a pretty reasonable probability I would go so far as to say better than a 50% probability, and that's just a gut reaction on Jeff's part, that we will not have to have the Fed put the brakes on. I think by the time they get back to neutral, combined with the shrinking of their balance sheet, it's called, which means that they basically are selling bonds in the market and raising longer term rates, economic activity will have slowed down to the point that the economy can continue to move forward without a recession. Now, Uh, as is our representative john carter so blatantly said on uh, friday through his letter uh, some economists are calling for a recession that says we are definitely going to have a recession well if you followed the link and you checked it out it's the economists in germany that are saying that the u.s is going to have a recession yeah
0: because the germans are actually likely to have a recession
1: right they really know what's going on in the united states uh actually if you then looked further down the article you would find out that Goldman Sachs who has probably a little better feeling for what goes on in the United States because they're in the United States are saying that they don't think so maybe a 30 percent chance of a recession next year so um basically if you don't the party that's not in the White House at this particular moment will always say bad times are coming and the party that is in the White House is generally going to say good times are coming so those are not the most reliable places to look um there's a Probably better than 50% chance that we'll get out of this without a recession. Why do I say that? Because Americans have a lot of cash. We have a very, very high employment rate. We are hiring people at a high rate of speed. This indicates our economy and economies do have this has a lot of momentum. So you can, you can kick the gear, you can kick the gearbox into neutral and we could coast a long way. And remember, the Fed is not the engine that drives the economy. The engine that drives our economy is you and me and us. It is the consumer. And we've just had consumer spending jump at 3.7% annualized in the first quarter of the year. That's higher than inflation. That is huge.
0: For when we're Um, talking about that same, like the core inflation, that consumer spending is going up faster than inflation is. That's part of what's leading to inflation, but it's it's also, as soon as we get the supply chains ironed out, expect prices to fall.
1: That's very uh, normal. So, so there's a couple of things going on. One, consumer spending remains very, very healthy and very high and is charging forward very nicely, which is a good thing. Cash balances are in really good shape in the American households. Debt levels are very low. Uh, all of these are indicators that we have a lot of positive growth left in the economy, which is why I'll say right now, I'm going to make a forecast. Now, forecasts are like weather forecasts. They're only probabilities. So I'm, I'm not saying this is an absolute certainty. There are no certainties. I don't think we're going to have a bear market at this moment. And I don't think we're going to have a recession anytime soon because the signs that have preceded such things in the past are not there just that simple yeah the leading not there
0: leading economic indicators are up this is an index it's it's a fantastic index that historically they've there has never been a recession that wasn't predicted by the leading indicators dropping in advance they're not dropping we're seeing growth there we see consumer spending we see and this is where i said i was going to bring this in we just have a few minutes for it but I was down at the coast this last week, which is why I missed the program. We had a great best of program that was played for us. Thanks, Rio. Um, the, The whole concept of what's happening in the oil and natural gas world, I saw tankers lined up as far as I could see out into the ocean, waiting to come into port to load up on petroleum and liquid natural gas to take it to the rest of the world. And the ships were coming in about every five minutes, which means that the wake had only just had, it was still there from the last ship when the next ship was coming. The traffic out there, the way they're keeping the speed up is just amazing. They're not packing it in faster than every five minutes because that would actually slow things down. They are at about the peak amount of ships that they can get in and out at a time and there's a line waiting as far out as, as you can see, that's a tremendous amount of wealth transfer to United States companies, which leads to wealth transfer to United States shareholders and United States employees. This is a really big, big thing. The corn market, the wheat market, the sunflower market, the canola market, all of these things are having a massive gain based on the troubles of the rest of the world, and we're experiencing price hikes based on that. But it's still, the benefit is mostly being kept here. And we're about out of time for this hour. I've got more to talk about the coast next, next hour. But if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we actually give customized investment advice, fiduciary investment advice to people of relatively high net worth. Uh, the phone number locally to get that, there's voicemail on the weekends, real live people on the week is...
1: 254 947 1111. You can reach that toll free at
0: 1 800 914 7526. That's 800 914 plan. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com if you're lazy like me. You can uh, read our newsletters going back. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can listen to our radio program going back lots of years, see what we said before. Uh, until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.